and welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM or one of our wonderful and very, very appreciated community radio partners all the way across the country and into the United States and our podcast listeners, which could be anywhere. The moon, for all we know. I'm your host, Darren Kaster, sitting in studio, of course, with just M.A. Ma. And I don't mean just because it's just you, but I mean, uh, I'm not used to being alone with you. So welcome, M.A. Oh, geez, Darren. Now that sounds really loaded. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have, uh, of course, Jason here to keep an eye on us uh, as well. But we're, we're absent, both Kevin Farmer and Stephen Hostetter today. Uh, but that's good. And you're going to get a break from me soon coming up, too, as well as I'll be uh, taking a show or two off at some point as well. So we're getting down into the crunch, though, to get into the crunch of the show and the crunch of the time of year. Of course, COP is uh, very, very rapidly approaching us. Uh, we will be talking a little bit about that. We've got a, a variety of news items on that from across the country as well. But coming up in just a second, in addition to that, we will also have a international caller. We're going to talk to uh, the chief executive officer for ET Index, uh, which is a, a, a carbon um, investor uh, uh, guide, basically. So they help uh, investors identify, understand, and reduce exposure to carbon risk, which sounds great to me. Uh, we'll be speaking to Sam Gill, who's the CEO of that uh, company in just a moment as well. Uh, and then there's a number of topics today. And then I also grabbed... Um, uh, somebody sent me uh, just a sort of blog article, I guess, by um, an environmentalist that I thought it had some good and some bad, some stuff I really, really liked and some stuff I wasn't super 100% about. Uh, but I thought we could uh, have a discussion item about that as well. And then, of course, later in the program, we'll be uh, getting more into some of the cop and some of the other just random news items because there's never any lack of anything to talk about about the environment on this show. Um, so as soon as I'm given the indication, we'll uh, have Sam on the line in just a uh, moment. Um, uh, but as a preview of that as well, um, we, of course, have a lot of conversation. The conversation right now, I think the big news story about uh, uh, COP as well, aside from the fact that we're absolutely sure that we're not entirely sure what we're going to be uh, bringing to the table as far as Canada is concerned uh, to the COP meetings. Uh, we have some uh, initial comments from none other than Stéphane Dion that he is pessimistic. Other people, Obama saying very optimistic. Um, and of course, the other concern uh, is that we will not be having much in the way of protests or marches or solidarity or outside of the official stream conversations that have been such a hallmark of previous conference meetings. Uh, I will be referring as well to an article by Naomi Klein as well, who talked a little bit about that. Uh, but just while we're waiting to get Sam on the phone here, um, Ma, I'm not sure if you had an uh, an initial impression of that. We'll dig into a little bit uh, later. But if you had a a quick thought on to where how much you buy the security argument uh, and whether you think that that's a legitimate reason to prevent um, marches. Well, I think it's really hard from where we're sitting to make any sort of critical assessment of security in Paris um, post uh, the very extreme incidents that happened. However, I think what this highlights is that it's really important that marches around the world or events around the world in a way make up for the lack of a People's Climate March in Paris. We were really expecting something as powerful as the march that we saw um, right before the UN Summit on Climate Change in New York City. And there is actually fantastic momentum happening around the world with people mobilizing. We just saw Melbourne report in with 60,000 people, if you can imagine, on the streets. So more on that later, but I think it just emphasizes the point of the work we need to do in other parts of the world. All right. Now, I understand we have uh, Sam on the phone. So thank you for joining us very much. Sam Gill. Hi there. Thanks for having me. 
Absolutely. So um, I would like to ask you a little bit first about uh, your company. So I just did a very, very brief description there, which was that uh, you help guide uh, investors to sh- uh, shield themselves from carbon risk. Um, and I wanted to, before we get into sort of some of the meat, you've uh, sent me a few blog articles to read over and we would like to talk about Paris a little bit. Do you want to just do a, um, a sort of a little bit more... Um, full explanation of what that actually looks like. How, what type of things are you advocating and how do you uh, help uh, protect people from carbon risk? Sure. So I guess we're interested in helping investors manage carbon risk, but we're actually also very much interested in trying to re- reduce the collective climate change risk. Uh, and the way that we do that is that we, we rank the biggest companies in the world based on their carbon emissions. Um, so these rankings are really designed to create a dynamic incentive for each and every constituent to be competing relative to one another. And by that, I mean that the company has to be um, transparent, so actually disclosing its emissions, and ultimately to have lower emissions in order to move up the ranking. Um, then we link these rankings to a series of uh, investable indexes. So just like the S&P 500, for example, you're still investing in all of the largest listed companies, but we shift the weighting from the high-carbon to the low-carbon companies. And really the logic there is that if enough investors begin to use this system as opposed to the conventional model, then we can start to shift capital from high-carbon to low-carbon companies. And by virtue of doing that through um, a public ranking system that is then linked to an index, this is designed to really create a positive feedback loop between the two such that companies know that the only way they can get more capital invested in them is by lowering their emissions. So um, this is called environmental tracking, which is what the ET and ET index stands for. Um, And that's basically what, what we're doing. One of the things that I thought uh, you might have a, a unique perspective on was we've been talking a lot on this program recently about um, how there seems to have been a sort of a big lurch in the uh, amount of impact that conversations about climate and uh, sort of quote unquote the demands of activists are being taken seriously, not just with the sort of recent um, red wave uh, election of Justin Trudeau here as, uh, as the Prime Minister of Canada, uh, but also you know we're looking at things like the hashtag Exxon New and pursuing criminal charges possibly against Exxon for lying to people. There seems to have been a big lurch in sort of public opinion and the willingness of. Um, uh, people to listen to scientists and also the willingness of people to actually go after some of these bigger companies who have been, uh, you know, not only high on the polluter list, but also you could say very, very low on the, on the moral list. Uh, and we talk about that from, from that sort of like ethical uh, standpoint. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about sort of the numbers behind that. What have you noticed also a, a correlating big change in uh, companies' interest in, in protecting themselves from, from carbon and investors interested in this? Is, has this shown up in your data? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we see, um, well, we've seen, generally speaking, the level of disclosure of companies getting better. Um, there is an organization out there called the Carbon Disclosure Project, which uh, surveys the world's largest listed companies. And I think they actually uh, had more companies reporting to them um, in 2014 than they did in 2015, so a slight drop. Um, but that's not necessarily indicative of the general trend. I mean, I think you see... Um, you know, I've been working in this field for about five years now, and I have to I have become increasingly optimistic, even though we near the point of no return um, at an ever increasingly fast pace. But um, the fact that you now have 
large companies, particularly um, from oil and gas, that are actually calling for a carbon price, primarily because they're actually interested in, in, in focusing on certainty, which is you know, a risk that they can actually manage, as opposed to this sort of um, nebulous idea that a carbon price is coming, but they don't know how much it's going to be and they don't know when it's coming. So I think there has been a shift. I think there's a lot of companies that are starting to realize that actually um, not only can they have a, a sort of PR win if they're on the right side of that transition and they be, are, are seen ultimately to be taking it seriously. Um, so you've got companies like Unilever, for example, that uh, certainly portray themselves as, as being um, forward-looking. Um, but, you know, I do think there's, it's always hard to cut through the greenwash versus uh, real tangible action. Um, and so that, that's always the challenge. But, yeah, I do think there is an increasing momentum um, within the business community um, towards ultimately yet yeah, more meaningful outcomes. One of the um, things that you noted in uh, in one of the blog articles that you forwarded along uh, was that uh, just 90 companies cause about two-thirds of man-made carbon uh, emissions. Um, I, I think there's a number of things in there that we could unpack, but uh, do you want to just talk a little bit about that, just that uh, sort of statistic? Uh, who generally are these uh, companies, and, and does this mean that we have more leverage because we're talking about a small group of companies that maybe we could exercise uh, influence on? Yeah, I mean, I think that... Um but, uh, it's interesting, actually, I watched the documentary Cowspiracy last night, and uh, the main point was actually that uh, there's an awful lot of emissions coming from um, agri- well, farmed agriculture. Um, so I have to say we shouldn't forget about that as well. Um, but certainly, I mean, companies um, do account for an awful lot of emissions. Um, and I think what's particularly uh, interesting is that an awful lot of these companies are listed companies, which, although a lot of people don't necessarily, um, certainly in Europe anyway, uh, have that feel- feeling of empowerment. But we as pension fund holders and investors, whether that be through our work or through our government, are major stakeholders in the global economy. And actually, through the, the redirection of capital in our pension funds, we can influence the, the, those companies. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, that there are, um, it's, it's, I guess it's, you know, it's hard to go into specifics of all of the numbers, but there are uh, the usual suspects, uh, whether that be non-renewable resources, uh, mining, you know, oil, gas, and these, these are sectors that are, are contributing significantly um, to the amount of emissions out there. And when we actually yeah, consider the supply chain emissions, that, that's a really key component there. Um, that, you know, these figures really start to add up. So, for example, if you're thinking about an oil and gas company, they may be extremely efficient at actually taking um, the, the, say the oil out of the ground. That would be their, their direct emissions um, and maybe have a relatively small footprint in that respect. So I believe ExxonMobil is an example of a company like that. You know, they're very efficient at what they do. But actually, if you're not considering the um, supply chain emissions, so in this case, when that product is actually burned by, well, you know, everybody who's driving around in their cars, then you're really missing the picture. So um, it's absolutely imperative to include the supply chain when actually looking at a company's carbon footprint um, to, to actually get the full picture. Hmm. And I, th- I think that brings up an interesting uh, problem, of course, because a lot of in a lot of cases, what we're dealing with is publicly disclosed uh, emissions, and uh, you know, so, you know, there's the usual skepticism and, and cynicism. We have to say where I'm, you know, there's to some degree, to some degree, it's likely that people are going to put a positive shine on on their on their numbers. 
Um, the other problem there, of course, I, I think with that as well is that in, in some cases, the people who are doing this, uh, the, the internal people at companies who may not have quite the level of expertise uh, may not actually understand how to properly calculate it and may leave out things like, you know, downstream or life cycle analysis or, or we may not uh, actually be getting a, a good enough picture. Do, do you think that to, to, to deal with this problem that, we, that at some point we will have to actually force mandatory uh, sort of very comprehensive reporting uh, on a wide scale, uh, global or UK or you know North American basis. Yeah, so that's an interesting, an interesting point you touch on there. So um, I think the first thing to say is that there is um, an internationally agreed and, and most widely accepted accounting standard, which is called the Greenhouse Gas Protocol. Um, so that's a part of the World Resources Institute based in Washington. And so they, they really do have a framework which is, you know, public, freely available. Anybody can find out the methodology and they run courses. So um, although, you you know, you are right, it's not necessarily the easiest job to calculate uh, the carbon footprint. There is certainly guidelines. And most governments, when they adopt some sort of regulation in this area, tend to at least make it compatible uh, with that standard, which classifies greenhouse gas emissions according to scope one, two, and three, which is the supply chain. Um, so, I mean, there are always going to be challenges with the accuracy. Um, that's a given. But then you do also have independent third parties that come and validate that data, um, again, to recognize standards. Um, I, there is always going to be a, a VW, you know, um, hiding in the data set somewhere. But I guess the, the main point is, given that that's the data that we have and, and, and what we're working with, do we just distrust it all or do we assume that, you know, 99% of it is going to be okay and that there's going to be uh, a little margin for error um, in there? I, I, I do think that um, mandatory reporting certainly would help. Uh, I, I guess this sort of brings us back to a slightly wider issue, which is that surely the simplest way to tackle the climate change problem would be for international governments to come together and uh, agree, you know, six minutes. The challenge is actually getting world governments to all agree to the same thing, and as we're about to witness in, in Paris. So what can we do in the interim to, to sort of generate the same amount of pressure uh, independent of government? And that's precisely why we publicly rank the world's largest listed companies to, to stimulate that kind of pressure. Whenever it's, uh, we've been on the air for for ten years here, and when it, so we've done several uh, COP meetings as uh, as far as coverage here. And w one of the things that always comes to mind for me when when doing uh, international climate negotiations, it always reminds me of that old Simpsons episode uh, where they're trying to get two people uh, to agree that's the principle and somebody else, and they're like, "Why don't we? Okay, why don't we just agree to disagree?" They're like, "I don't agree to that. Neither do I." <laughs> and, <laughs> um, so going into that, uh, we've just got a couple of minutes uh, left. And again, if you're just tuning in, we're talking to the uh, Sam Gill, who's the CEO of the ET Index, which is the Environment Track uh, Index, who uh, helps uh, investors uh, understand and reduce their exposure to carbon risk. Uh, Sam, what I'm hoping uh, you'll, you'll do here, just with our last couple of minutes, is uh, let us know a little bit what you specifically are, are looking for. Are there any sort of key indicators that are going to give um, that we should be sort of paying attention for as we go into the talks here and and hear some of these commitments that are companies uh, saying? Are there any keywords or, or key proposals that you think will uh, sort of indicate to you one way or the other if we're going to have a quote-unquote successful agreement? So I guess I'll give you a slightly different perspective than probably the one that you'll hear most of the time. Um, I actually don't think it matters what is going to concretely come out of Paris. I would say that the single most important thing is the perception of what comes out of Paris. And 
ultimately, if the perception is that it is a good deal, and obviously the, the French and everybody else will do their best to put their um, most positive PR spin on it anyway, that in itself will be enough to uh, cajole investors into moving away from high-carbon companies towards lower-carbon companies. And for me, that is the key thing. All of the agreements in Paris are almost, you know, it, it, it doesn't really matter um, unless they're obviously uh, 100% perfect, as long as they can shift capital, because that's ultimately what will drive the change. Mm. And so, it's really uh, about perception. Uh, yeah, no, I think I, I think that's a good point and uh, interesting. We'll, we'll uh, uh, Ma and I will dig into that a little bit later in a, in a further section when we come back from the break. But just while we've got you, I have one final thing we wanted to get to, to you for, uh, which is that I, I I think I may have actually neglected to point this out. Uh, but we are actually speaking to you from the UK, <laughs> um, and I was wondering if uh, if you would just uh, maybe give us an overview of anything that you uh, positives, negatives, concerns, or whatever, just specifically from a from an EU or or, or even uh, more local UK sort of perspective about um, what sort of local governments are doing there and, and, and if it seems like they are willing to um, come and have a serious conversation about reaching a serious agreement, what the, what the sort of water seems like over there. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the EU perspective is, is a very positive one. I think the EU has, has generally taken a lead on, on climate change issues and, you know, the argument has typically been, well, we'll go further if everybody else will and now we see the US and China. So, um, unfortunately, the UK is pretty pretty bleak. Uh, this conservative government that came in uh, saying that they're going to be the greenest government ever, um, I'm afraid that was complete nonsense. Uh, they've taken all kinds of measures that are very depressing from a, an ecological standpoint. Uh, so it's although we have a very positive law, which means that in the UK, and I believe this is the only one, um, possibly Finland might join the pack, but committing us to reduce our emissions by 80%, um, by 2050, which is very impressive. However, the current policies of this government are making that very uh, challenging, and it's quite likely that we're going to miss quite a few of the, uh, the targets that we've set ourselves. So, um, you know, that's cuts to renewable energy, uh, scrapping of the competition to, to, um, to fund uh, carbon capture and storage, um, and just generally a kind of uh, drive towards removing as many policies as possible that appear to be green. Um, you know, so currently exploring adding another runway at Heathrow, which, again, the Prime Minister said he would never do. Um, as I say, it's very depressing. <laughs> never for a politician is usually about 12 and a half seconds. Uh, I'm afraid we're out of time, but uh, I want to thank you very much for your time. Again, we've been speaking to Sam Gill, who's the CEO of uh, ET Index, which is a uh, carbon tracking service. You can find uh, a blog on their website. They've got uh, portfolio carbon footprinting. They've got their listing of the uh, the ranking reports as well. So lots of interesting uh, info there. And if you're interested on uh, following Sam on Twitter as well, you can follow him at the Carbon Kid, which I thought was pretty good as well. Uh, and if you didn't catch that or if you forget it, we'll all be on the website as well at greenmajority.ca later on today. Thank you again for your time, Sam. Thank you. All right. And uh, now we're going to go to Jason, who is our technician today, who's going to tell us what we're going to be listening to right now. Well, I thought I'd do something a little bit different this week. And, and uh, yeah, and I got some friends on my Facebook page involved and, and I got some suggestions. So they, and they came up with some good ones. So this is James Wyatt Crosby and his song O-T-O-T-W.
right. We're coming back in. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 uh, FM. I almost said AM. <laughs> Why did I say that? I don't, I've been 10 years and I got it wrong the first time ever. Seems You're probably <laughs> – you could be listening on uh, CIUT 89.5 FM, which is the local station here where we're broadcasting of. You could be listening on one of our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners all across the country and into the United States. You could be listening to us off the website of greenmajority.ca. The best place, though – well, not the best. Let's be real. Uh, but a, a very, very good runner-up way to listen to it now is the podcast uh, as well. And the reason for that is we are doing um, – there, there's always uh, a little bit of runover. Um, there's always some ideas. Uh, and some people who don't necessarily get to speak up, like uh, our fabulous technician Jason right now who's in the studio – um, and we, so we're doing a brief after show that will be included only in the podcast version. It's very brief. It's just about another 10 minutes, but it, uh, it's slightly less formalized. Uh, it's a little bit more of just a freestyle chat. Um, and allows us to sort of finish our thoughts. So if you enjoy the show, I recommend going and checking out the podcast because there's just a little bit of extra show for you. If you do that, it can be found at greenmajority.ca with that brief internal commercial over MA. We're going to talk a little bit about COP now. Excellent. That's one of my favorite topics. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we did a very, very brief uh, sort of primer before we got our first guest on the uh, on the air there. Um, there is a number of, of course, of things to talk about. Um, but what I wanted to start with was Naomi Klein, who's uh, non, not surprisingly at all been very prolifically writing articles everywhere that will print her uh, over the past several months for obvious reasons. Um, she is, uh, I, I think, I think it's fair to say a thought leader might be an accurate way to put that um, on this issue, which is to say that uh, she's uh, outspoken and well-spoken, uh, and we generally agree with lots of what she has to say. I'm wondering if you had to, uh, if you agree with what she had to say about this, though, which was she seems to, I mean, and again, and, and I think you, in the opening MA, I think you put your finger on it, which is that who are we to make a decision or to, to properly assess whether or not it's, uh, it's you know, a security concern or there's enough of a security concern in Paris right now with the threat of uh, terrorist attacks to have uh, public meetings um, and things. So they've, the French government has used this to say we're not – no protests, no marches, no unofficial events that are not part of the official COP. Um, what was really interesting though and I will leave, will leave you to comment uh, on this as well is that Naomi Klein also points out in the article, which we'll have linked on the website of course, um, that they're not stopping all sorts of other things like for instance, there's concerts still going on and there's a bunch of sports games and all the Christmas markets are still out. So – it's. I, th I think it would be. F it would be fair to forgive people for seeming like they just really wanted an excuse to prevent marches, or not. I, I think. I think you could easily be of two minds of that issue. I'd like to know what your impression is, Emma. Well, in terms of the importance of what would have been the People's Climate March in Paris, I, I do agree with Naomi Klein that it was going to be very significant. There are a lot of people that have traveled to Paris from around the world. Some of them are from communities that are directly impact, impacted by climate change. And it would have been wonderful to have them leading a mobilization and seeing people take to the streets in massive numbers. And it surely would have been a, a huge mobilization. That being said, I think what we need to look at is that, yes, one of the unfortunate consequences of acts of violence is that they do damage to things that that are the at the polar opposite, which is the global community coming together around a common critical cause. But this isn't to say just because that march can't take place in the form that we hoped it would that the mobilization around the world 
will not. It is going to be, it has already started. As I mentioned, there was an incredible turnout in Melbourne of around 60,000 people. And it's ongoing through these next few days, through the beginning of, through November 29th, which is really the big day to launch the the COP um, with things happening around the world. And these really need to counteract the negativity that we've seen emanating out of the, the violent attacks that we observed in Paris and the cancellation of the march. I wouldn't go as far as condemning the French government, and I'm not saying that's what Naomi Klein is doing, but they have, in fact, really championed their role as hosts of the Paris COP, and they have been doing a lot of advocacy around the world, bringing attention to the importance of what's happening in Paris. So their decision to cancel the march, I would say we shouldn't necessarily be suspicious and say, oh, well, you know, they've, they've wanted to do this and they were looking for the right opportunity. Obviously, having mass numbers out on, on the street, people, there are security concerns. Um, but what I think is important is that we do, through different channels, whether it's social media or other channels, um, create a space for those people from directly impacted communities who have come to Paris to tell their stories throughout the the COP conference, but also afterwards, and to hear directly from them. And in that way, we counterbalance the cancelling of this march. Mm. And I, I think that is, uh, to borrow a phrase, fair and balanced. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think, that, I, I think that is fair, because, you know, uh, part of the thing people are saying, well, uh, like one of the things Naomi mentioned in the, in the article as well was that, you know, if they this is such an integral part of it and it's not sort of simply a sideshow as she said it's it's really is an integral part of the talks to be able to create it's you know people creating a, a space to have a voice at the talks that are not sort of officially allowed um and it's uh, critical um and so her suggestion there which i don't really agree with and it was the one thing i didn't really agree with in there was that well you know france can't guarantee security and in a way that you know if you can't have all the talks you shouldn't be having the talks because it's so important to have these voices there that that you know it's better to to delay it or move it um and and that i don't really agree because i think it's overemphasizing the um specificity of france as a target i think the target you know france was a target for that uh one attack um but the biggest target of anyone who wants to cause trouble is wherever the world leaders and a bunch of crowds of people are going to be and so i don't think delaying it or moving it would reduce uh the danger i think instead uh, to throw them a bone and there's still time for them to figure that out uh if monsieur Hollande is listening uh i have a suggestion for you as well uh we have this thing called technology it's 2000 15 you can easily find very cost uh, ineffective ways for people to be a part of the talks from these communities without uh needing to secure them in large groups of fifty thousand people in the streets uh and i think that an acknowledgement of the importance of these voices uh could be very easily rectified by providing a technological or otherwise easier to manage than large amounts of you know public security um that could balance these concerns and com and not sort of simply shut them out so i'm i'm on i'm on side with you that I, I don't necessarily think this is nefarious uh but i think that more um could be done to keep these voices included and and not simply say i'm sorry you've lost your opportunity because of these other people yeah i i agree and i think what's important is that we should highlight that this isn't just in the hands of governments. Let's highlight what is actually happening, which is in the hands of people. 
there's an incredible importance in organizing where you are. And of course, big shows in, in major capital cities are important um, because they do show the groundswell. But let's talk about what's happening around the world because this doesn't rely on governments making decisions about who can be seen where and security considerations. So I just want to highlight the fact that there is going to be, and they have already started, as I've said, marches and rallies around the world. Um, if you want to look at what's happening in your particular locale, you can go to different organizations' websites. One of them is avaz.org, and they have all the global climate events displayed there. And you can search them by your city or your postal code. Um, there's going to be a major national mobilization here in Canada and Ottawa, the 100% possible mobilization that's focused on the transition to 100% renewable energy by 2050. And in Toronto here, we're also organizing an event at Queen's Park on Sunday at 4pm, Light the Way to Climate Action. So if you're not going to the Ottawa mobilization, we strongly encourage you to come out to the event here in Toronto at Queen's Park. I'm also aware that there's an event happening in Hamilton. So there is a lot to participate in. We are seeing a mass movement of people around the world making their voices heard um, and showing solidarity with people around the world who are directly impacted by climate change and on the front line. And you know what? It's going to be amazing. So we have the opportunity to, to really counteract the negativity that have come out of the Paris and Beirut attacks and also acknowledge that there has been a loss of life around the world and that we value all lives equally and that we stand in solidarity but with people that are directly impacted. Mm. And speaking about um, public attitudes and public opinions, uh, two things on that. One of them is that, you know, while, while there have certainly been a number of concerns recently, I think uh, Stefan made a good point a couple of weeks ago. I'll give him credit even when he's not here uh, <laughs> for stuff. Occasionally was the, which was the idea that, um, you know, we do uh, – I'm, I'm hugely paraphrasing what he said, but uh, was the idea that the, there is a bit of a – uh, a defeatist mentality around being any sort of activist, really, but particularly uh, an environment uh, environmentalist, because the deck is so insanely stacked against in facts and information um, and reality a lot of the time in these conversations that it can be very hard. But um, I think an acknowledgement that there has been a lot of progress. And yes, and I, I will also sit in for Kevin Farmer. I'll sit in for both our missing co-hosts uh, right now as well. Uh, that yes, the, what actually matters is do we do we do the job that gets done? And that's binary. Uh, whether you know whether we do or do not prevent catastrophic runaway climate change is binary. We either do or we don't prevent it. But. Um, Having, uh, you know, believing that we can do it and sort of some of that positivity and and willingness and openness and the expectation that we, we could actually maybe do this uh, is required to to achieve any goal. Uh, any life coach will tell you that anywhere up to you know, anything else. You have to you have to be willing to win. Um, and I and I think that um, I would caution. I haven't had that impression too much. Uh, Emmy, I don't know if, if you'll feel the same way. I, d I haven't noticed too much of that. I, I do feel generally like a lot of people are very cautiously optimistic. Um, a lot less cynicism at the moment, as far as I can tell, um, from previous uh, cops where we went in and basically were like, okay, this is not going anywhere. Uh, and, the, and the last thing I want to add, of course, to that was that I can quantify this to some degree, which is on one of the articles we'll have linked today. Uh, there was a recent survey, in fact, so recent, it's from this month in 2015 of 1,500 Canadians uh, by Oracle Poll Research that said uh, that 84% of Canadians uh, say investing in renewable energy should be the third highest priority 
of the federal government out of a possible seven, I would put it at number one. But I'm, three is good. This is what I'm talking about. We have three is a good thing. Uh, yeah. 78% – sorry, I'll just get through the other two. 78% believing protecting the climate is more important than building pipelines and developing the oil sands and 70% uh, uh, that Canadians want federal government to commit to legally enforce the limits on carbon pollution. So those are all good things. We should be happy about that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I just want to bring it back to what our guest said this morning about the importance of perception. Now, some people might actually say, well, what about substantial action? But perception is part of that equation. So if people come out in mass numbers and send a strong message to politicians, politicians react directly to public perception on an issue. The markets react directly to public perception. And there's a dynamic interaction between politicians, public perceptions, and the market and how companies behave. So I think, you know, we should not underestimate the impact of people coming out in droves and making their voices heard. Um, this is not any, in any case uh, an action that will be ineffective in changing the course of policy and decisions. COP may not culminate in everything that we're hoping it will. And, you know, there has been, I just want to flag this up because we need to be pragmatic about it. There has been pushback from the U.S. as much as they've been championing this on um, it resulting in binding emissions targets. Now, the EU has taken a really strong position and they have been championing this to be a legally binding agreement. Hmm. We don't know as a certainty that that will be the end result. That's what we want to see. And we definitely need to keep up the pressure. Um, but there has been a lot of back and forth um, around whether or not that will be the outcome. And what we want to make sure is that even if we don't get as far as we need to on an international level, that countries bind themselves through, you know, domestic legislation, domestic policy. And the more we keep the momentum going, the more likely are we more likely we are to see that actually happen, both um, internationally, but also on a national level. Mm. Well, on the, on the financial point of view, that too, as, as well, and, and um, a- another way in which we, while the, the COP meeting is super important, and, and believe me, I'm, I'm absolutely not saying they're not important, uh, but to sort of reduce it to the point that, like, you know, if we don't get the deal, to echo what you were saying, if we don't get the perfect deal that we want, that we shouldn't sort of, you know, lose it all to despair, is that a lot of, a lot of this too is, is, a, is about a race to the top. And, um, you know, we've already seen huge changes in, in the markets uh, with so much trouble and rejections of pipelines and questions about, you know, new pipe t- uh, assessments that will have to be taking place. Um, companies like uh, Exxon and TransCanada have taken huge hits uh, to all sorts of things. They're, they're, they're very questionable investments, I would say, at best at the moment. Um, and part of that is due to the markets and part of that has been due to people are now actually watching how they're going about trying to sell their business model and how sort of strong arm it is. And like, oh, wait, you mean this isn't just an open and shut case of this is the best way to fund this country, but it's literally just that you're used to getting your way and you're, big, you're a big bully. And I think people are noticing that and saying, oh, okay, all right, well, if that's it, you know, how ready are we with, whoa, renewables are worth three times the value to the economy as oil. So what the heck are we doing with this here? And I, I think people are starting to wake up to that. And, and I've, we've noticed a shift in the market too. So even without a, even without a binding agreement, I think that we still could uh, manage to get what we need because with a strong enough indicator, with this continuation of these signals, you know, uh, d- despite the fact of my criticism of Justin Trudeau personally, the idea that the, the people were so abject against Harper, of course, not all of that was the environment, but a big portion of it was. Um, 
was all of these signals was more and more and more of companies, big corp- corporations and big companies, even if they don't really understand what they need to do or, or really at, in their heart feel like it's, they should be the ones to have to do it, that it is the inevitable end of the market that hundred percent renewable is going to, it is in fact inevitable that we are in fact inevitably going to be hundred percent renewable. And now it's just a question of when, and the, the when question, um, I think really changes the dynamics uh, from a business point of view, because even companies that, that maybe don't have any particular interest in, in being environmentally friendly and, and don't particularly care, um, all the companies maybe that produce their parts are going to be, you know, uh, uh, Tesla's factory that's going to installing all this renewable energy. So not everybody has to, and sort of, if enough people do it, then because the all economies are so interdependent, sort of, the, it brings the whole floor down, um, and and this will allow more public pressure, right? So it's a it's a snowball in the other direction in the in the right thing. So it's, I just, I felt like I needed to sort of justify my cautious optimism here that yeah. even if we don't get a, an agreement, but the, it's a, it's a lot more complex than, you know, uh, it's not like signing the lease on your rent, right? It's not a matter of, okay, well we do, we got the apartment or we don't unlike climate change. The deal itself is not, you know, we get it and we succeed and we get it and we don't fail. We could, we could have a legally binding agreement and still not, and still fail. And we could definitely succeed without one as well. And I just think that that's really important to acknowledge. Yeah. And I think it's important to talk about what's happening in our own backyard in Canada with regards to that. Um, We've seen that the PM has met with the, and the environment and climate change ministers met with the premiers. They are claiming that they're in alignment. Um, and I think we would both dispute that in terms, there, there's some indication that not all the premiers are in alignment, but anyways, um, I think we do need to keep the pressure on, um, and putting, putting pressure and sending a strong signal to our government, um, in the lead up to COP and during COP means that they, it will also carry through, you know, it will carry through to what they believe they need to do after COP. And I think that's really important. We're still, we're still taking the same crummy um, emissions reduction target that the Harper government set, which is not science-based. And frankly, if all countries were taking such a, a crummy target uh, to COP, there wouldn't even be discussions around a legally binding agreement to keep global temperature under two degrees Celsius. So, um, I think we really have a lot of work to do in our own backyard, and we'll continue to to talk about this a little bit further. This is not just a rebranding exercise. This is about meaningful, tangible commitments on the global stage, but also following through after COP ends. All right. And I think uh, I had a quick comment about that too, but you know what? I'll save it. We're, uh, we're going to go to our second uh, music break here, uh, which means uh, Jason is going to visit us again. Hello. And uh, what do we, is this more suggestions from your, more, your exclusive yeah. Facebook fan group? Yeah, that's right. Um, this was a pretty timely suggestion. Actually, um, this artist, the weather, the weather Station, is playing tonight at Massey Hall um, to a solo crowd. So this is her song, Everything I Saw. Baby fool, and I gave it all to you. I come on 
Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more. MA had a little bit more for us about uh, COP. I had one final comment, uh, which maybe I'll, I'll just stick in now and then I'll let you close out the thing as well, which was uh, we were talking about a minute ago before we went to break uh, some of the Premier's uh, comments um, and the uh, perception that they're sort of all in line. Two things that really stuck out. Uh, the one I'm referring to right now is an iPolitics uh, article uh, by Joan Bryden. Um, and there's some comments here from each of the premiers, and two of them, two of the premiers really stuck out for me. One of them is that Brad Wall apparently still hasn't gotten the message about reality and, and doesn't read his email. Um, I've been <laughs> I've been politely harassing him a little bit on on Facebook because he keeps saying ridiculous things, um, so r- ridiculously demonstrably false things. Uh, so if any of you out there are super uh, Twitter activists. Uh, activists i don't know um the the those people who like harassing politicians and you're you're feeling a little bit like uh a void in yourself that you don't have harper to yell at anymore uh premier brad wall is doing a great job of being ignorant if you'd like to direct some fury at him on climate change anyway i won't uh, try and uh, i don't want to be seen as to be describing his whole character uh but he's very out to lunch on climate change uh and the other quick thing that was sort of bothering me a little bit and and maybe commenting on this will be my throw to you uh, again ma as well was that christy clark also has this really weird thing where she seems like she there's many many statements on this and every single one that i can find is essentially seems to be saying that canada is already awesome it's just that we have an image problem and i'm wondering who teleported her up from the u.s because that sounds like very much something a right-wing republican would say uh from the um, americas but it, it does seem like the majority of people going in realize that we have a lot of work to do and we need to do it um there's a couple of outliers uh like that as well but um yeah, it just seems weird to me that someone would someone would even say that 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 our biggest problem is is an optics problem. Yeah, so I think all of this highlights to me one of the the fundamental problems with Canada taking uh, an emissions reduction target to COP that is not in line with the science of where we need to get to. And so, you know, one of the one of the the counter arguments to 
saying, oh, well, you know, it's okay that they wait and there need to be deliberations with the provinces is that there is a minimum position that as a country we need to responsibly assume in terms of bringing a target that is in line with the under two degrees scenario. And that's not happening. Of course, the national government needs to work with the provinces in terms of how um, we are going to reach where we need to reach. But the climate science is telling us that there is actually a minimum non-negotiable position that both the federal government and the provinces need to start from. That needs to be their starting point. And I think the framing of this issue is actually wrong. It's not about saying, well, let's have all these discussions and land on a common agreement. No, it's we have a global responsibility. We need to look beyond our own borders and our beyond our own federalist system and say, okay, our, our minimum responsibility to all people of the world and the global community is to chart a pathway that is science based. And that's then the starting point for negotiations between the federal government and the provinces. Of course, the provinces have been the ones to date that actually have started good initiatives. And we are seeing some some promise coming out of Alberta, I would say, for the first time in terms of... Sentences when I started the show, I didn't know I would ever hear uttered. <laughs> yeah, in terms of changing the trajectory around that And that's that, because that we love you, Alberta. Just, wanna, yeah, just for no, Alberta I mean, listeners, thank we you. We love the people of Alberta, and we appreciate that they've elected a government that actually is committed to doing something. Yes, the plan that's emanating out of that province right now is not perfect, but it is a dramatic turnaround from what we've seen in the past. But I just want to go back to this fact that there, yes, it is positive that uh, the Prime Minister and the Minister of Environment and Climate Change have met with the Premiers. It's promising that a delegation um, is going together that includes the Premiers to Paris. But we really, really need to keep at this group of political leaders to make sure that this isn't a rebranding exercise and an exercise alone. And I'm using their words. This rebranding came from came from their discussions. And that that policy across Canada is in alignment, not only in terms of discussions that they've held, but also in alignment with, with what needs to happen for the planet and for the people. And uh, I about the province thing uh, too as well i'm sorry i guess my final comment on the thing uh, will be is that i i think it's really really important that they all go to the the meeting and 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 while there seems to be as we we've already acknowledged there's a variety of opinions and my concern i think was your concern uh, rephrased what you just said essentially was that the problem with saying that the, the goal here is to have an agreement is what you're what that's language what's that coded language for uh is you know essentially lowest common denominator because the the focus there is an agreement not that we have targets that match science. Yeah. And I think those two things are, are mutually exclusive in many cases. Um, yeah, so I just want to, I just want to pro- provide a, a slight bit of context because all the, all the talk of targets can be actually quite confusing. The main point is that the target we're taking now will lead us to emissions that are in fact 6% higher than in 1990. So by 2030, our emissions will have grown um, 6% higher than the a baseline year of 1990. And that's clearly unacceptable. That's not the path that we want to take as a nation. Um, what we need from the government at a minimum is that we need to cut carbon pollution nationally by at least a third by 2025. So that's 35% below 2005 levels. I just wanted to inject that because it can get quite confusing with all these different baseline years floating around. Mm. And we're uh, we're into the final 10 minutes here, Emma, and I want to... Um 
take a slight tack change. I teased earlier that there was an, uh, an article and uh, I kind of surprised you with it. So I don't know if you've <laughs> got a chance to get all the way through it. But uh, it's, uh, it's an article on, again, this will all be linked on the website, but it's an article uh, linked from uh, the Wake Up World uh, website. And it's by an unabashed uh, environmentalist. In fact, his, uh, the, the author, well, uh, the, the first of the two authors is Derek Jensen, who is uh, a member of the steering committee of the Deep Green Resistance. And I just wanted to read that for context. So these are people um, who are uh, self-identifiedly very serious about this this topic. And, and the article was interesting. And there's some stuff I agree with in here and some stuff I'm not uh, entirely in agreement with here. Uh, you can read it for yourself later. But one of the things that uh, that I pulled out for there was was essentially um, the destruction was with the subtitle on the final section was the destruction must be stopped, not made more sustainable. And what's talking about is the idea that a lot of these conversations uh, now that sustainability is kind of the buzzword uh, is that the conversations are kind of uh, essentially and this this point I think that was devastatingly true and I agree with 100% which is the idea that essentially the conversation now is okay how do we keep doing what we're doing now but force it into the box of some amorphous thing called sustainability and not just the inherent understanding that there's no way to make 1 plus 5 plus 7 plus 2 equal 3 it just it doesn't matter what order you put those numbers in there's too many you can't feed, feed that through the keyhole that is what we actually have as far as ongoing limits here and uh and so to get philosophical here at the end of the show and feel free to tie this back into anything we've already been talking about was that idea of to get an agreement it seems like some in entrenched powers that are not going to willingly willingly give up their influence power and wealth are going to need to do so. They they seem it seems incompatible. At least our current understanding of of what sort of global economics looks like is increasingly seeming to just be fundamentally incompatible with true sustainability, as opposed to this notion of let's take the way things are here and and try and improve them shade by shade over time until eventually we get to this point where where the environmentalists lay off our back. Um, and I thought you would certainly have something about to say about that, but I have no idea what it is. <laughs> well, I mean. I think that anyone who's opened their eyes to really taking in what all of this means, and that is daunting, let's acknowledge that it can be daunting, um, we'll realize that there needs to be a fundamental transformation, and I don't use that word lightly. So it's not just about um, a collection of various sustainability initiatives, um, some which may have varying degrees of impact. But it is about changing a lot of the systems that underlie our society and and drive the kind of things that lead to um, that lead to societies being highly dependent on oil and gas, for example. Um, this doesn't mean that we have to give up, quote unquote, the good life. And I think that's what scares people a lot. But it does mean our definition of what the good life is needs to change. And it needs to include the costs of how we live, um, examining those costs it, from a more global perspective. And this is what I was trying to say, you know, when we, we get really um, – we get bogged down in the, the the nitty gritty of you know our Canadian context is that we need to actually challenge ourselves to think more globally and think about this as a challenge that transcends borders and look at connecting those dots to things that we can do specifically on a on a local level, but always bearing in mind that bigger picture. Now that's easier said than done, but I think if we just look at sustainability initiatives. Um, 
at a micro level, that's not going to take us where we need to get to. Ooh, I wasn't sure if I was going to get a segue and you just gave me a perfect one. Uh, we, did, we didn't we didn't collude on that by the way Ooh, oh that was awesome okay so there was something i wasn't sure I, we have like three minutes left so uh there was something i wasn't sure if i was going to bring up and you just gave me the perfect opportunity to do so um so which is the idea of this the global cooperation and we need to we need to be thinking globally and i know it's a it's a sort of a, a tautology it's something that people like to say about think globally act globally and it's a thing people like to say but uh really right now especially with the sort of um issues of quote-unquote global terror and, and ISIS and all this stuff, um, is that the reaction seems to be very sort of protectionist and everybody's sort of th- at least having conversations about, if not just outright locking their borders and shutting down. And, you know, we're having a discussion about whether or not we should be accepting refugees. And at the bottom line, the number one feed in for all this stuff, and people love to say, and, and they're wrong, I can just say that they're wrong, that, oh, well, this is because, you know, there's a problem with the Muslim religion. Nonsense. Uh, the problem here is the destabilization of societies globally. The, the, the places where we're having uh, all these problems are also places that are extremely uh, impoverished, extremely corrupt, extremely war-torn, uh, which can be directly linked in almost all cases back to the U.S., uh, as to why they're disrupted and war torn in many many cases, and that this just just this attitude, and it's not generally been the Canadian attitude, but it's just as a globe we all need to sort of think differently about this. Was that we now have global impacts, we need to be solving problems at a global level, and that means that a certain thing that if the number one cause of of destabilization and therefore things like terrorism is destabilized countries, well then maybe we should try and undestabilize them, and that doesn't mean send in ground troops, that means sends them computers and food. And that means help them, and that means welcome refugees, and that means create conversations to re- to reduce this. I mean, any anyone that says that the the U.S. drone drone program has not contributed to recruiting terrorists is just a fool. Um, so, I mean, I think that's where we do we can have a conversation about sort of these security concerns and tie it into how we're going to solve some of these global climate problems. Because at the end of the day, and I know it's something environmentalists love to say, but it, we say it because it's true, is we're all going to have to work together, and that means all of us, and that means that we had to respect all our needs, all our well-being. And that means that we we need to be bringing, you know, if there's countries that can't feed themselves or, or have corrupt governments because they're unstable because of all this stuff, we need to go in and, and help them. And by go in and help them, I mean a lot of the time that means say, what can we do to help you not go in as in literally go in as in with ground troops or with airstrikes? Um, we need to be stabilizing this planet in a bunch of different ways. And that means politically and geopolitically uh, as well. Unfortunately, we are out of time. I'm no MA. You had a final comment. You'll have to save it for the after show, which we'll be going to right now. So if you're listening on the podcast, we'll be right back. If you're listening on the radio, then go download the podcast and or I'm afraid that's all the time we have for. Thanks so much and have a good green week, folks. The Green Majority Program is also brought to you in part by some of our awesome members. Keep in mind, if you would like to support the climate cartoons and some of our other uh, non-radio activities, you can uh, support us by becoming a member. So uh, go to the homepage. There's a button that says, how can you help? There's a number of things you can do that are free. And then you can also become a member. Uh, That would be great. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you in a second. Woo. So they welcome, uh, thank you for listening. We're now in the after show. I'm joined by Emmy Ma, who was just on the radio program, and also Jason, who was uh, as well. And uh, Jason, I believe your last name is Barkhouse? Yep. Yeah, I got it from emails. I just figured that out just now. All right. Um, unfortunately, this is Jason's last week for a while, uh, but I asked him to come sit in on the bonus show as well. So, Emma, you had a thought. You were you were not done. Uh, I, I steamrolled you at the end of the show there a little oh, bit. Oh, that's so okay. No, <laughs> finish no, your you, thought, no you had gone, you had gone um, down the path of talking about – 
how do we address how do we address these issues that are framed like conflict issues and not just bomb the crap out of other countries and and lead to an incredible loss of life like send them you were saying something like send them send them computers you know send them food and i think you know it's really hard when people are faced with with like violent attacks like the ones that happened in paris to think like that but that is where in my view the solution lies that we need to create societies where people don't feel so marginalized or they're not so impoverished that they feel their only out is to engage in this kind of extreme behavior and that isn't just about i mean i totally agree with you in terms of us shifting our position which we're seeing from the new government to a capacity building position but it's also about making people feel welcome in our own societies and i think we've seen um in a lot of countries in the Western world, and it's been very prevalent in Europe, where people that have been born in these countries actually feel quite marginalized and then are more vulnerable um, to being recruited. So I think my the main thing I just wanted to raise and throw out there for discussion is making people feel welcome in our own societies. And I think it's the same kind of sentiment that when we talk about feeling feeling connected to people in other parts of the world – um, or in our own societies that are directly impacted by climate change, it's the same sentiment that we need to tap. I was going to just add a, a personal story, which reminded me of uh, when I was in grade seven, actually. Uh, we had a, a situation uh, where we, there was w- one kid who uh, at the time was p- being particularly a troublemaker, and he was just kind of a phase he went through. He didn't actually end up being like a bully or anything like that, but he was he was acting out, as they say. Um, and the course of action the, the teacher chose to do is, of course, the teacher left the room and the, they had these balls. I don't know if you remember them where that it's, it's a ball made of stick uh, suction cups. So it was oh, like yeah. a little round ball and yeah, you could yeah. throw it basically at any surface and it would stick. And sometimes if you got it really good and you wet them just right, mm-hmm. it would actually roll down the wall. It was really cool. So anyway, so the teacher left the room for like five seconds and, and the kid licked the one side and whipped it at the <laughs> chalkboard a couple times. And anyway, so she came back and there was, you know, sticky marks on the board or whatever. She was like, all right, who did this? Nobody said anything. Uh, you know, if you guys don't tell me who, who did this, uh, we had, we had a class trip coming up and she's basically like, I'm canceling the trip for everybody. If you guys don't tell me who did this now, nobody wanted to tell them who did it, not because they were like on his side, but because they were afraid that this kid was going to kick their ass after class. Right. So like, I'm not going to do that. This kid's going to beat the crap out of me if I say anything. And so in response to that, the teacher did, she ended up canceling a field trip for everyone, which now made the entire class hate her guts. And started acting out worse. And I, I feel like that's a very small microcosm of essentially what's entirely wrong with the large part of NATO's foreign policy. And don't be a fool and think that I'm saying, therefore, therefore I'm in favor of Russia or therefore I'm in favor, favor of ISIS. No, what I'm saying is that type of foreign policy doesn't work. If you have allies, you need to create cohesion between your allies to move forward towards a common goal, not throw everybody out. Okay, well, if one of you does, if you guys don't do what I say, I'm going to strong arm you and bomb the rest of your country. And by the way, would you help us? It, it doesn't work that way. And I, and I think we need to do that not just because, you know, this has turned into a foreign policy show, but because it's so directly relatable. And in, instead of bombing them, we should be giving them solar panels and creating allies and going out. And we should be – the biggest thing we can do to take the wind out of ISIS's sails is to welcome as many refugees as possible. Is it possible that someone's going to sneak in with them? Yes. Is it, but it's also possible they're going to sneak in without them, right? Like there's no way to guarantee that un, un, undesirable, dangerous people are going to get into this country. The only thing we can do to reduce the danger is 
is reduce the number of those people. And the way that we reduce the number of those people is by not making 2.1 billion people, the entire Muslim faith, the, you know, quote unquote, North America or, or the EU or Western civilization's enemy. That's exactly what they want. They tell you that's what they want. Yeah. And, and so I think it's part of like a, a, just a supreme arrogance. And I think it's a very, I, I don't mean male as in men, but male as in masculine sort of the idea that the way to solve problems is to dominate your opponents as opposed to try and prevent there from being a problem in the first place or to create allies and bridge build and try and f- actually fix problems is to in- simply enforce will. And I think it's a very immature, I think it's a, not just masculine, I think it's a very immature, I think it's a very young boy's attitude about how to solve problems was do what I say or I'm going to beat you up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in place of that, we could be doing things like raising the bar and, and by giving solar panels, make allow these countries that are just trying to develop now to skip right over the fossil fuel age and let's get let's start building some giant mega factories and mega producing solar panels and just give them to, to countries and say and try and create some stability. I don't know. Uh, I, I could that rant could go on for hours, <laughs> uh, but that was my little story. Uh, Jason, you listened to the entire show today and you just listened uh, uh, to that. Um, is that off point? Do you think? No, I'm. Um um, I'm trying to think of, of what I want to say. I know it's hard. It's, it's hypnotic <laughs> listening to me rant. I <laughs> well, every time you speak, I'm always just like, oh my god, yeah, you're you're exactly right. Don't uh, say that. I already have an ego problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that <laughs> I don't have anything. I think you know. So we've been hearing a lot about in in our Canadian news about. Um, welcoming, you know, 25,000 Syrian refugees and then balancing the compassion with the concern. And I think there are, there are a couple things that I feel as a society we need to not lose sight of. The be- If we do the best job possible in welcoming these people, um, we, we minimize any potential risk to our society. That's, that is the best security measure is to actually integrate people and give them the supports they need to feel welcome and flourish in our society. And we can do it. I mean, we are, unless you are an indigenous person in this country, you know, we've all come to this country at different stages, our ancestors have, and we are a model of the fact that we can have people arrive and actually succeed in our society. We have a lot of challenges, of course. We're not perfect, but we we have some demonstrated success in that model, and we just need to keep reinforcing that in terms of making people feel welcome. And then the other thing is there's no guarantee if, – if somebody intends to do violence, there's no guarantee that they're going to be necessarily someone that's recently immigrated to to the country. They can be somebody who's born and raised here. They can have – their families can have been here for many generations or, you know, they could have come as a child. We can't control that. So we shouldn't let paranoia around these things drive policy. Of course, you know, in any sort of immigration policy or settlement of refugees, um, there you need to take a balanced approach. Government has processes and procedures and those need to be there. But for us as a society, we have a collective responsibility um, to make people feel welcome and they will add value to our society. I think on that... Um We'll probably uh, close, but maybe a final uh, thought at all about that would just, yeah, I guess I don't know. I I, I was just mentioning to you in the on the uh, in in the interim there, and and part of the reason why this particularly is such a 
on such an edge for me and why I'm why I'm doing uh, I feel You're all like fired I, up <laughs> yeah I'm all fired up well also and I feel like I have a, a responsibility mm-hmm. to to talk about it because I have a platform uh, through yeah. the show is that like so we uh, it's, uh, our office is the Center for Social Innovation there's a number of internal members and one of the emails that was sent out through the internal listserv which goes out to about 10,000 people was that a, a new group actually more than one group so there was a couple of groups that already worked in sort of quote-unquote in this sector um, and uh, that it did similar things. And then I saw an entirely new created group uh, just created for people in Toronto to for essentially it didn't specifically say white people, but essentially essentially for white people to escort visible Muslim people who are visibly Muslim or people who wear hijabs or anyone who might be concerned about their safety to essentially walk them home or walk them to the bus stop so that they're not assaulted or harassed. And that made me really disgusted to live in Toronto. The fact that the fact that that would even anyone would feel the need that that would be necessary in my city just uh, it both makes me sick to my stomach and really, really upset, uh, really angry. Um, and and I think that it's incumbent. You know, um, we have this platform and we're fortunate to do that. But everybody has some amount of a platform, um, and it's incumbent on you to to speak up. And I think a lot of the reason. I think a lot of people feel like they do not have a space to speak up when it comes to international trade agreements and geopolitical policy, but we do have the ability to speak up about what happens in our neighborhood. Uh, and I think that we can we can do that both with respect to climate change and renewable energy, but also to treating other people with decency and not making the entire rest of the planet our enemy um, because the Americans are really good at that and it's not working out for them so well. So let's not copy them this time, huh, guys? Uh, that's my final thing. Um, I, a final comment, either from either of you, including uh, just a ditto from Jason, if you're feeling tongue-tied. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ditto. ditto, ditto from Jason. Any any closing comment, Emmy? Yeah, just to you know, the, reacting to what you've reacted to, it can make us feel quite down. And I think I just want to affirm that there are more of us out there who are compassionate towards one another as human beings and relate to one another on that level, whether it's to the person that's sitting beside you on the bus or whether it's relating to someone you know is out there um, in another another country across the world. There are more of us that feel that way than those of us who want to either enact violence or who are deliberately taking measures that are going to hurt other people. And so we are a critical mass and we need to remember that we are a critical mass. And with that comes the power to act. And we're going to see a lot of that happening over the next few days. Um, These global climate marches and rallies are just one manifestation of that, but they're the ones that are happening on the horizon. So I just want to say wherever you are, um, you know, this kind of action, this kind of solidarity and unity is the way to counteract all the negative things we've just talked about. My turn for ditto. <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. That's it for the bonus show. We'll be back next week. Take care. Thanks for listening.